I'm a little embarrassed to admit it now. I had this vehemently anti-product manager sort of stance. I didn't want any of them to touch my <laughs> my product. It felt to me like giving up control. It felt to me like giving up the vision. Like I've never wanted to build a team where engineers just take orders. That's what it represented to me. I'm from ops. Every single year I've been like, like every year I've been like, well, this is definitely the year we're going to fail. <laughs> and this is the first year that I'm like, we might not fail, which might mean that we're doomed. <laughs> My name is Charity Majors. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Honeycomb.io. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noel Laffart, and today how Charity Majors coined the term observability and built a tool to surface the relevant infrastructure bits. All this and more on Code Story. Charity Majors didn't touch a computer until she was in college. In fact, she was raised in a religious fundamentalist compound in rural Idaho, homeschooled and cultivating all of her own food. She went to college to study classical performance and piano, and though she loved piano, she decided to switch keyboards, so to speak, and pursue something in computers. She's been in San Francisco since she was 19 and never wants to leave. She's firmly motivated by using code to get stuff done, i.e. she doesn't do tech for fun. Several years ago, she was the first infrastructure hire at Parse, while supporting the mobile backend as a service before and after the Facebook acquisition She had access to a tool where she could slice and dice her infrastructure to gain visibility into a particular section of services and answer questions. When she left, she realized that a tool of that nature was paramount to doing her job well. So, she set out to build it again and figure out how to coin the term observability. This is the creation story of Honeycomb.io. Five years ago or so, seven years ago or so, <laughs> I was doing my thing, infrastructure engineer at, at Parse. I was their first infra hire. I came on board when, you know, pre-beta. And that first year was insane, right? Between when I came on board and when we got acquired by Facebook, we brought online over 60,000 mobile apps. The technical problems were astoundingly hard and fun and hard. Every other day, like a different app was hitting the iTunes top five or whatever. And, We'd be scrambling to figure out why Parse was down, because Parse was going down all the time. It was a really hard set of problems. We were doing like microservices before microservices was a thing. We were kind of ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. But like the, the core root of the problem was for our API server, we had a fixed pool of HTTP workers, unicorn workers, right? And and backing it, we'd have multiple databases. And anytime any of those backing databases or other services got slow, within seconds, all of those workers would fill up with requests that were in flight to that slower backend, and the app would go down for everyone else. And I tried everything. I tried every tool that was available. You know, monitoring tools, metrics tools were great because they would tell you that something was wrong, but they wouldn't tell you what was wrong. You couldn't slice and dice your way down to figure out what exactly was wrong. And logging tools were great if you knew what you were looking for and you had remembered to log it in the first place. But if it was a new problem, if it was an unknown unknown, you were screwed because you didn't know what to look for. 
The first insight we got into this problem was at Facebook. There was this tool called Scuba that was butt ugly, like aggressively hostile to users. Like it was not fun, but it let us slice and dice in near real time. And all of a sudden I could follow it like a trail of breadcrumbs, right? Like I could start from something's wrong. What's wrong? Oh, the, there's a bunch of errors. Like what are they going to? It seems like they're going to the right endpoints. Okay, right on the endpoints. Well, is it all of them? Well, no, it's not all of them. It's just the ones that are backed by MongoDB, let's say. Well, is it all of them? Well, no, it's just the ones that are for this replica set or for this cluster. Well, is it all of them? You know, and, and I could just like, I could follow that step after step to the end. The amount of time it took us to diagnose these previously intractable problems dropped like a rock, like from open-ended days to like, maybe minutes, but but it wasn't even an engineering problem, it was a support problem, right? You, you could always find the path to the problem. This made a big impact on me, like, <laughs> it changed my life in a very real way. I started sleeping again. And then when I was leaving Facebook a couple years later, I kind of went, oh crap, I don't know how to engineer anymore without this tooling that we've built. Like, it's, this is not just how I get the site back up with the sites down. This is these are my five senses for production. This is how I know that what I built is doing what I wanted it to, you know? And so Christina and I Christina, my co-founder, start building this. And like we had to start by writing a story from scratch, which was non-trivial. <laughs> but it was actually the easier problem compared to trying to figure out how to talk about this. We knew that we weren't building a monitoring solution. But trying to figure out how to talk about what we were building was the hardest problem that I've ever had in my entire career. It was half of the way through the first year that I first, I Googled the term observability, which was not a term that was widely in use at the time. But like I Googled it and, and I, the definition, like it had this really rich history in mechanical engineering, control systems theory, that was all about, can you look at the outside and understand what's going on in the inside? Right? Can you understand any system state that it's ever gotten itself into without being able to predict that you would see that system state before, right? And like, I just had like light bulbs going off in my brain, like, oh my God, this is what we're building. This is so great. Fast forward a year or so and the entire industry has adopted all of our language. <laughs> Most of the people who are out there building quote unquote observability tools or observability teams, they're just building monitoring tools. They're just building monitoring teams. They're not actually making a leap from the known unknowns to the unknown unknowns and all of the technical ramifications of that choice. That's interesting. So it is observability, but it's not monitoring. How do you how do you describe that? And that's what you're saying. That was a really hard thing to be able to describe that. How have you landed on describing the difference there? Because that's a, that's a key. Yeah. Well, it kind of depends on the audience, right? Like there there are a lot of technical ramifications that fall if you if you accept the definition that. You know, observability means being able to just ask questions from the outside to understand any system sitting inside. There's actually a lot of things that fall from that. It needs to support high cardinality, high dimensionality. It needs to, you know, pack a bunch of really rich context. You need to be gathering up all this information at the right level of abstraction such that you can ask any question without needing to ship custom code to describe that system state. The, the way to solve this problem, it comes down to the data format. You can't gather metrics. Like a metric is a single number where you've appended some tags to it. It doesn't support high cardinality. It doesn't support high dimensionality. I believe that the source of truth for, for this needs to be these arbitrarily wide structured data blobs where you can just pack in all of the context, everything that's interesting. Uh, another way to think of this is that 
this became necessary when we blew up the monolith because when you when you had a monolith you could attach a debugger and you could just step through the code now when you got rid of the monolith now your code is in all these different services so it it has to hop the network so you kind of need to bundle and attach all that context along with it we seed it with everything that we know about the request any parameters that were shipped in all of the stuff about the environment say the container the ec2 instance the language internals anything we know we just stuff it in there as your code is executing you can also stuff in be like oh shopping credit key this will be useful stuff it in oh user id this will be useful stuff it in you know when, when your request is ready to exit or error you ship that single arbitrarily wide structured data blob off to a service like honeycomb in the future when you're trying to like figure out what's going on Right? When you structured it this way, you're able to go, oh, what all of these errors have in common is they're all in US East 1A, they're all on this type of instance type, they're all, they all have this you know, large packet size, like whatever the hell it is. If you didn't structure it that way, then you couldn't do that, that post hoc like, correlation. If you're more of a, say, client-side person or user experience person or whatever, I would describe it more in terms of, of the questions that you're able to ask. Questions like, what went wrong? What did these errors have in common? It's like right now, like people are used to having these metrics tools where they can see that something went wrong. And then the logging tools where they can, see, they can see what went wrong. And then maybe the tracing tools where they can see how it went wrong. And observability means you can ask all of those questions together because it's, it's just the same data, right? It's two sides of the same coin. You're just flipping back and forth between visualizing it as a waterfall in your tracing tool or like slicing and dicing it in your logging tool, right? You should be able to do all that at once. That's a perfect segue. So tell me about the MVP. Tell me about that first product you built, how you went about building it. And and I would even say when you recreated it or, you know, recreated your five senses, as you were saying. Tell me about that MVP and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. Well, I would preface this by saying that we did it all wrong. <laughs> and our investors were telling us from the very beginning, they were just like, shouldn't you find product market fit before you write a storage engine? No, definitely not. We will just look and feel like every other tool out there, like it needed to be different. We are really, really lucky that we managed to survive <laughs> because we built for like a year and a half before we even went out there. But the MVP was basically just this arbitrarily wide structured data blobs that you could slice and dice. I would say that we, we started to find product market fit when we added the integration where you could just like install a library and we do all of the you know, bundling up and, you know, wrapping up of the information and ship it off to Honeycomb, right? Like we did that like two, three years in. The other thing that was really helpful was we built sort of the APM home. People would get their data in and then they'd be faced with this query builder, which is hostile. (laughs) Query builders, no matter how easy you make them, are never easy. And so instead of facing them with that, we would show them like the same three graphs they get everywhere. Your request rate, your error rate, and your latency. And that that made it much friendlier. But in the beginning, like the MVP, the, the very basic thing, was basically just a slightly better logs tool. So when when you're building that, you know, you had to decide, like I had this amazing thing when I was at Parse and Facebook, and now I've got to rebuild it. And I know you said you rebuilt it all wrong, but even in building that first, you know, first version, you had to make some decisions and trade-offs about what you were going to do and what you weren't going to do. Talk to me about those and and, um, how did you cope with those decisions? Uh, to be clear, like we didn't have a great thing at Facebook. It was a it was a thing that was necessary and was also horrible to use. We wanted to make something that was delightful to you. 
you know, at Facebook, they could just cram it down our throats. You use this, you use nothing, right? And this is a mistake that many ex-Google, ex-Facebook, et cetera, teams make, which is they're just like, oh, well, we were forced to use this thing. It was life-changing for us. We're gonna just, just going to build it and we're going to force everyone else to use it, which just doesn't work. From the very beginning, we were talking a lot about, you know, how do we make this friendly? Ultimately, what we're trying to do is revolutionize the way engineers think about production systems. We want to invite them in. Instead of it being this terrible thing that they have to be responsible for, we want it to be something where they understand that it makes them a better engineer. We talk a lot about, you know, bringing everyone up to the level of the best debugger in every area of your system. Because when you're working on a system, you know, you're working on your service, you know it intimately. You know all the ins and outs of it. You know how to interact with it like an expert. And you should wear grooves in the system by, by interacting with it. But when you're debugging it, you're not just debugging your corner of the system. You have to be able to understand and debug like the full request. So like, what if we could just give you access to your team's brain? Right? Like everyone on your team is responsible for a different point of the system. Every one of you interacts with it in this expert level way. And you know, five months from now, when you've moved on to a different part of the system, you're going to have forgotten how you interacted with this part of the system that you were once responsible for. Like, what could we do to just make it so that, you know, you can go, oh, okay, I'm on call for this thing, whatever. I don't know how to use it. I get paged. But like, I know that my team's expert is Ben or Emily. So I'm just going to go look at how Emily interacted with the system. Or, or like the last time we had a problem that felt like this, you know, I think like Alice was on call. So I'm going to go see how she did it. And I want to just like retrace her steps through the system. History may not repeat, but it rhymes. And that should like take me within within shouting distance of the answer. So from that point, you've got your MVP built, you've considered how to build it, you have a good point of view on how you're going to build it, and you get the tool out there. How did you progress the product from there? And and kind of what I'm looking for is how did you figure out what was the next most important thing to build and how you built your roadmap? You know, so in the beginning I w- I had this I'm a little embarrassed to admit it now. I had this vehemently anti-product manager sort of stance. I didn't want any of them to touch my <laughs> my product. It's hard for me to even project myself into the way I, I was thinking about it then. It felt to me like giving up control. It felt to me like giving up the vision. It felt to me like sacrificing. Like I've never wanted to build a team where engineers just take orders. That's what it represented to me. Like I mean, all the other engineers, I would just be taking taking orders if I hired new product people. And that was dumb. <laughs> Um, I have an amazing product manager now who I rely on very much. I think also in the in the early days, I think that I was telling the team not to listen to our customers because I knew that our customers were just asking for faster horses. They all they had come from the metrics world and, and I knew that we were building something dramatically different. So I was reluctant to to listen to our customers very much. And now like it, it, it's like 30% we have you know built what we wanted to build, we've got, gotten farther, and it's 70% I actually feel like the world has come around to us. You know, when I started talking about observability and all this stuff, literally I had so many people just tell me, you're too late, it's done. Datadog's going public, there's nothing left to be done in this space, just give up and go home. And I think that over the past few years, a lot of space has opened up there, partly as a result of you know the observability stuff that we've been talking about, partly as a result of you've now got like logging, APM, metrics, time series database. There's like five or six different market segments 
they've, they've changed their product roadmap and they're like, we do observability now too. I think that customers have been educated a lot. They're expecting different things. This is all great. Now we can listen to our users because <laughs> they're asking for the right things. We've been operating with like nine people writing code for the past two years, which is insane. It's like an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude less than any of our competitors. And the reason for that was because when we last raised, you know, our VCs were like, we believe that you can build product. We aren't sure that we believe that you can sell it. So, you know, we went heads down, like Christine focusing on sales, me focusing on marketing, or just trying to figure out, we're trying to get our house in order over the past two years. And as of this last summer, we've shown that we can. Our sales are great, marketing great. So now like we're, we're doubling the size of our engineering team. Like there was, there was a long time there where it was just like, we just have to keep the wheels on the bus while we figure out our business side. And, and now that's opening up a little bit more. So now, you know, we've gone through the exercise of like, what is our product vision? And, and really that what our product vision is, is to fulfill the promise of observability. I, I think that Honeycomb is really the only legit observability tool out there at this point, And yet it doesn't fully fulfill the promise of observability. There are, there are still questions that you can't ask using Honeycomb. And, and in order to be able to understand any internal system state, you need to be able to ask any question given the data that you have. So that's really what's driving us right now. Doubling back a, a little bit, what when you build the tool, what, what sort of tools are you using to build an observability tool? I mean, what, what are you writing this platform in, you know, things like that? On the back end, it's Golang. Uh, on the front end, it is um, React, for the most part. Gotcha. So Golang and React and then microservices type architecture, I assume. Yeah, microservices-ish. You know, the API is just one service, but we've spun off other services too. We also have this one thing, secure proxy. For customers who aren't able to fully use the cloud, they can run the service inside their secure network and proxy all their events through it. It either stores a, the hashed value of the events or representation of the events itself and just, just forwards on the encrypted version to us so that people who you know, have really high data security needs or HIPAA or whatever, they can still use this. Okay, fast forward a little bit back to where we were. So you're about to expand the team. You've been coding with nine people and now you're going you're gonna to double it. How do you go about building your team? And what I'm specifically looking for is what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? We've been in the Bay Area for a long time. We have a lot of amazing friends, right? And, and this is something where we could have just hired all of our ex-Google, ex-Facebook friends, right? From the very beginning, we were like, we're building a tool for everyone. We need to have a very diverse group. And, and I don't just mean diverse in terms of like gender and, and race, but like diverse in terms of where they come from. You know, we very intentionally went out and hired a bunch of Hack Academy grads because we're like, this is really the most representative of, you know, the up and coming developers. The first two people we hired, I will admit, were, were people that we knew well because it was like the five of us for, for the first two and a half years or so. But even there, like we were very conscious of, because Christine and I are both workaholics, we hired two young dads with young girls who were always home by 4 or 5 p.m., like every night. So we were like, well, if we can't set a good role model for future employees, at least we can hire some people who will do that for us. Something that we've always done in terms of our interviewing is we do have a coding interview, but like the code is not the interview. We send them like a piece of code the night before. We ask them to extend or modify it in some way because greenfield code is just not most of what we care about, right? 
we asked them to spend an hour or two like extending it or like adding a feature or something like that, but not more than that. But that's not the interview. The interview is the next day when they have a code review with, you know, a couple people from our team. And the interview is just, you know, we walk through, why did you make these choices? Uh, what else did you have in mind? Uh, what would you have done if you had more time? Talk me through the trade-offs here. That's the interview. And we have found that selecting the communication skills is a great predictor of success at Honeycomb. I mean, tech skills, you know, they, they come and go. If you can learn one, you can learn it. You can learn another, you know, like what we care about is do they think clearly and can they communicate about what they're doing and do they not have an ego wrapped up in, in their code? I've hired, um, I think, nine, nine to ten now graduates from Dev Mountain here in Dallas and a great success uh, working with them and great folks. I really love how you said that's representative of tech folks today and moving forward. I totally agree with that. And it's, it's this combination of practical skills and view of the world actually as an end user, which is really interesting. A bunch of them are like sort of mid-career transfer folks too, who, you know, one of them is trained as a like biologist, one of them is Canadian like border security guard, but like they change careers and like they're some of the most driven and motivated folks that I've ever gotten to work with. They're just fantastic. Absolutely. Gritty and hungry. Yeah, they are. Well, this is this is gonna be interesting. Did you build this in the beginning to scale efficiently or were you fighting this as you grew? Oh yeah, no, no, no. We we like this is kind of a <laughs> The, the benefit that you get from having an ops co-founder is, is like scale was baked in from the very beginning. It's it's all, it's a distributed data store. It scales horizontally. It's not even a problem. Sort of what you knew and what you walked in with. So it's how you're going to do it from the beginning. The infrastructure is still largely what I built almost five years ago. It just, it works. <laughs> I think the more people should should really have ops co-founders. They're, they're incredibly rare and that's really too bad because so many of the, the classic, you know, scaling horror stories, problems that we hear about are just the result of people not knowing what they were doing and, and starting wrong from the, from the start. These things are not hard. It's so much harder to dig yourself out of a hole than to not fall into the hole in the first place. Do you have this template that you're able to replicate? Essentially say, this is how I'm going to build out a system? Or is it is it something that you have to decide how you're going to build it moving? You know, like for Honeycomb, or say you started something new, you would do it a, a different way for that company? or Or is it this is the the charity template. You know, I think that there's a there's a set of reasonable defaults at any given time. The set of reasonable defaults that I used five years ago, I think that they would shift a little bit. Like for example, I didn't use containers. I used EC2 instances because like Docker, Kubernetes were kind of on the verge of maybe being the winner at that point. And at this point, I think I would go all in on those. But at that point, they weren't ready yet, and so I didn't choose them. Um, but otherwise, I don't know what I would do differently. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built with Honeycomb, what are you most proud of? I am most proud of the fact that we have built a team where you do not have to be the loudest person in the room to be heard. Um, to be heard, to be noticed, to be listened to, to be promoted. Uh, I'm really proud of that. Absolutely. What What did you do to cultivate that culture? I would give most of the credit to person who's now our VP of engineering, Emily Nakashima. We hired her early on and, and I knew I knew that I needed her. Because <laughs> she comes from comes from a front end background and she was really sharp and really good at her job. But I also feel like she's someone who's been kind of consistently looked over across her career because she is very quiet. You have to prod her to speak up or you did. You don't so much anymore, but you did. And you can tell she just been shut down a lot of times. A lot of times she came to us. 
but I needed her because I am not someone with any front-end experience or design experience or product experience. And the fact that I leaned on her so much, I was traveling half the time for the first three or four years while I was CEO. Uh, I leaned on her so much and I think that she really built this culture where quiet people are, are celebrated. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. You know, honestly, I think that the, the original mistake um, was me being CEO. We had originally had three founders, third one didn't work out, and I kind of was left holding the bag as CEO, but I didn't want to do it. And I had nightmares for like two years. I had nightmares almost every night about being basically unemployable for the rest of my career because I had to take a big sideways step and like learn all this stuff about sales and marketing. And my heart wasn't in it. I didn't love it. And, and fundamentally, just like my personality type is not, I am not a very structured person. So there's this great book called um, The Four Tendencies, where she talks about what motivates you internally and externally, right? You can have your internal goals you set for yourself. Do you find it easy or hard to meet them? And the expectations that other people have of you, do you find it easy or hard to make them? And there's basically four possible com- combinations here, right? Either you find it easy to uphold others' expectations of you and your expectations of yourself, or, or you're the kind of person who, like, you need the gym buddy, right? You, you can't set the structure for yourself, but you can follow someone else's external structure. Or you're the kind of person who finds it easy to meet your own expectations for yourself, but can't meet others' expectations. Or you're the type who basically is a rebel and just, like, burns it all down. Can't meet anyone's expectations. And that's me. <laughs> I'm a, I am a bomb thrower. You know, I'm not someone who provides structure. So... Three, three and a half years in, my co-founder and I switched places. Christine is now the CEO and I like sort of instinctively dominate and she instinctively doesn't. And so having us in this configuration is just a much better equal partnership. Yeah, a CEO, like I have never been so miserable. It's yeah, when I would wake up in the morning, roll out of bed, the first thing that I would think about was just the weight of the responsibility. You know, like all these people have followed me off this cliff and I didn't know if we were going to land anywhere and it 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 was kind of slowly killing me so what's the future look like for the product and for your team I should preface this with I'm from ops every single year I've been like I was sure we were going to fail from the start like every year I've been like well this is definitely the year we're going to fail <laughs> and this is the first year that I'm like we might not fail, which might mean that we're doomed. <laughs> Things are looking up. Like, it's kind of crazy. The entire world has kind of come around to our way of thinking over the past four years, and it's a little wild. It's really crazy to hear, you know, the stuff that I labored over, like trying to figure out how to explain this stuff. Now, just seeing it like every conference I go to, it's being echoed. Like, every. Every other day, it feels like there's a product release from some tech company who's like, you know, using my words and talking about systems the way I talked about them. And from a business perspective, like we've gotten some amazing executives at Honeycomb and, and you know, who know how to do the things that Christine and I don't, right? Sales and marketing and stuff. We have some amazing customers. Right now, we're, we're bouncing people every day who come to Honeycomb who want to use us, but we haven't made it easy enough. We haven't armed them with the right information. We haven't made it easy enough for them to get their data in. We haven't we made it clear enough with the choices. And so I think there's some sharpening that we need to do. It's like we've built this great super highway and the on-ramp is 10 miles from everyone's front door. <laughs> so so we need to like 
build some driveways, right, to some, to some communities to make it easier for them to get on. But the product does what it says it does, which is a kind of amazing thing. Ultimately, I mean, this is about helping teams build software in a better way. Like, I come from ops where we're notorious for our masochism, and <laughs> I'm over 30 now, and I don't want to get woken up anymore either, right? Like, the goal is not to invite software engineers to invite us here in this hellhole. It's, it's to make it better, and it turns out that ownership is really key to that, making these tight virtuous feedback loop so that the person who's making the change and who's empowered to change it, who knows what the context is, is getting the alerts in a timely manner. And I and I feel like, you know, it's not just us. There's also like, you know, launch darkly with feature flags. There's this people the people doing, you know, chaos engineering. It's all about swinging the center of gravity away from pre production environments to to production, right? And making that the First class citizen, the thing that we think about first, the thing we build for first, the thing we test for first. I finally think that we might not fail. <laughs> um, it's just a question of the scale of our success. Uh, and, and so that that really boils down, I think, honestly, we're making some really big investments in design, design and product. I think that our success over the next one to three years is really going to be governed by how well we can shift from you know, a great ops tool to a great consumer quality designed tool. I think the design is how we're going to make sure that our engineering isn't wasted anymore. Like we've built a lot of things that people don't, they can't find or they don't see or they don't know how to use or the vision isn't getting transmitted to them somehow. Uh, and I, design is my, is my hope for how we bridge that gap. Let's switch to you, Charity. Who influences the way that you work? You know, a CEO or a CTO or an architect, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. Oh, I look up to Adam Jacob a lot. Adam Jacob, former CTO of Chef. In fact, the best compliment I ever received in my life was after we we finished pitching um, to, I think it was Storm this last round, round before last, as I was leaving, they were like, you're just like a female Adam Jacob. And I was just blown away so flattered <laughs> uh, I really admire him I think that he's made the, the leap from engineer to executive in a way that has impacted so many people's lives for the better he's just a warm and wonderful human being and and I also feel like Honeycomb is kind of carrying the torch you know just the, the story of how to build software better like I was impacted a lot by chef five six seven, eight years ago or whatever, it made a big impact on my career. And and I hope that Honeycomb can make the same kind of impact on people's careers. Well, if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I would start talking to users sooner, you know, because I made all the mistakes that I said I was going to make, even though I thought that I was not making them. I was like, ah, people like me, we often start companies and, and leave design for an afterthought front end stuff for an afterthought and I thought I wasn't making those mistakes and I totally made those mistakes <laughs> I wish that we'd been working as hard on the um, user experience as we were on you know the back end the storage engine the making the queries run that's what I that's one thing I would do differently I would also I think that I would quit sooner as CEO I think that I'm a very stubborn person, very stubborn. And, and of course, the fastest way to motivate me is to tell me that I can't do something. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that trait, <laughs> but it's not all great. You know, I, I think that I could have saved myself a lot of suffering if I had just been willing to give in a little bit sooner and go, yeah, this is not me. Someone else should do this job. 
So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur builder who has created the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? First of all, I really hate founders. Like, I just hate them. The cult of the founder in Silicon Valley is grotesque. I find it loathsome. 50% chance that I just shut down. Just sit down, shut up, and go away. <laughs> maybe valid, maybe not. But if it was genuinely great, um, I think that first I would ask, do you have a co-founder? Because going through this without a partner, I just can't even imagine. I just, I just can't even imagine it. And I think that you really do need a partner to get through it. That's great advice. Well, Charity, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Honeycomb. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.